Come this morning to Psalm 141. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. A Psalm of David. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. And let him, let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff. And they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave. And when one as when one plows and breaks up the earth. But my eyes are upon you, O God, the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious Lord God in heaven, Father, we just rejoice and give thanks to you for the great truth of your holy word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And what again, a great privilege it is to have your word in our own language and tongue, that we can read it and understand it, that we can hear it read and proclaimed and even sung. And so we just would pray, Father, as we give thanks to you for your word, that as we come to this particular psalm this morning, that your spirit would give us wisdom and insight to the truth that is here, that your spirit would be faithful to apply those things to our own hearts, that we might be drawn closer to you, and that we might be better equipped to glorify your holy name. And so we ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, Psalms 138 to 145, which would willing to be the Psalms that we uh, cover uh, this, uh, this summer and the next, uh, with last month and then uh, in through August. Well, as you noted, this, these psalms make up the last collection of the Davidic psalms that we find in the Psalter. And this, this collection of psalms are a mixture of praise and thanksgiving to God as well as imprecations against God, uh, David's enemies. But within this broader final collection, we have Psalm 140 to 143. And this smaller collection of psalms seem to be connected by many common themes. We know, first of all, that they are all desperate prayers 
that David is crying out, highlighted by the repeated cries for the Lord to listen and to take action. Also, we note that David describes himself as being surrounded by by evil men and by enemies. And as he pleads for God's mercy to deliver him, he also prays for God's justice to be meted out on the wicked. And last time we looked at Psalm 140 and we noted how it was reflective of the petition in the Lord's Prayer, Deliver us from evil. Well, here in Psalm 141, the focus seems to be on the first part of that petition, Lead us not into temptation. Here David acknowledges the weakness and the vulnerability of his flesh, that is his, his inner man that's plagued by the remnant of the sin nature that resides even in the redeemed of God. This vulnerability is made worse by the circumstances that he finds himself in. Although there's no explicit indication of the occasion for this psalm, the tone and the theme fits David's flight from Saul and his seeking refuge in the Philistine city of Gath. David says in 1 Samuel 27, after escaping uh, Saul's hands one, one more time, he says, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. So David, his family, and his faithful men lived in Philistine territory for a time of about 16 months. And he had already been fleeing, or David had already been been feeling isolated uh, from the worship of God in Jerusalem. And now, of course, it's made worse because he's not even in the boundary of Israel anymore. He's now in a foreign land, surrounded by godless men who worship false idols and gods. As David waits out Saul's fury, well, certainly the temptations of the culture around him press hard upon him and, and his family and his friends. Well, this closely echoes, of course, brothers and sisters, our own situation as Christians who live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation with temptations all around us. Because even when we stand firm in faith and we we resist the devil so that he flees from us, the daily repetitive assaults of idolatry, of immorality and godlessness can leave us weary and weakened, making us even more vulnerable to temptations. Well, this becomes one of the key reasons that we need to daily rest in the all-sufficient grace of God, which He renews for us each and every morning, constantly looking to Him for strength, so that every day we might call out to Him to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And so as we consider David's prayer in Psalm 141, it clearly becomes our prayer that the mercies of Christ our Savior would continually be poured out upon us. Again, as we noted, <clears throat> this collection of psalms are prayers of, of urgency and desperation. And we see this right at the beginning in, in verse 1. He says, Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me, give ear to my voice 
when I cry out to you. At first we note the repetition of, of cry out, which emphasizes the intensity of the suffering that David's enduring. He's not just being quiet and murmuring, he's crying out loudly so that the Lord might hear him even more. He's not calm or settled. The stress of his situation is, is compelling him to, to cry out in anguish. For ten years, David's life was in danger from King Saul. And that's why we find many of the Psalms that David writes kind of fits that context. Because it was spread out over a period of, of ten years. And if the occasion of the Psalm is when David finally fled to Gath... Well, then this would be near the end of those ten years. And we can imagine David is exhausted from constantly being on the run. There have been many close calls. There have been uh, various betrayals. And there have been demonstrations of Saul's extreme hatred for David and the lengths that he would go to capture David. And the wicked punishments he would bring upon those who brought David aid. Saul was consumed with seeking David's destruction. So much so that David realized that he could no longer stay in the land of Israel. It was too dangerous. It was too dangerous for himself, for those whom he loved, and for others who would be suspected of helping him. And so David fled to Philistia. But once there... He found many new dangers surrounding him. Many of the Philistines were suspicious of him. In fact, the, the first city that David went to was Gath. If you remember, Gath was the hometown of Goliath. The great champion of Philistia uh, whom David killed and battled years ago. And so their sp- suspicion of him would be well-grounded. Any wrong word or action would have been disastrous for David and his loved ones. Yet the Lord, in the midst of all this, granted David favor in the sight of the Philistine king Achish, who provided David and his followers with the city of Ziklag to to make that their home. But Ziklag was in Jerusalem, and the land of Philistia was in Israel. And so the isolation, not only from God's people, but especially from worship in the presence of God in the tabernacle, paid a heavy toll on David and those with him. The pressures and the temptation to compromise their faith was great in this foreign, idolatrous land. And though David didn't have to worry about Saul any longer, well, his troubles were far from over. And so he cries out to God in desperation that the Lord might hear him and respond in haste to bring him some kind of relief. Now granted, you probably don't have someone who's been hunting you down trying to kill you for the past ten years. At least I hope you don't. But certainly you can identify with David's desire for for peace and safety for himself and for his loved ones. You can identify perhaps with his sense of isolation and and distance from the Lord. Or the relentless assaults of evil and temptation that surround you each and every day. These struggles are common for the believer in Christ. 
because we know that this world isn't our home. That we're just travelers sojourning in the midst of the sin and misery of this life on our way to something more glorious. Not to say that this life doesn't have meaning and value. It certainly does. But we're here just temporarily on our way to eternity in the Lord's presence. And it's here that we see David ultimately as a type of Christ pointing us toward the humiliation, the suffering, and the isolation that the Son of God endured when He left His position of power and glory in heaven. And He became flesh to dwell among us. He did have people who were seeking His destruction. And He was assaulted by the evil one relentlessly, being tempted and tried in all ways that we are yet without sin. Jesus endured all this, friends. For our sakes, so that He might save and deliver us from sin and condemnation. So even as David cries out to the Lord for help, we remember Jesus crying out to the Heavenly Father for help and deliverance, confident that God's promises to him of of resurrection and restoration to glory would indeed come about. And and this is where we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed. Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. This was the acceptable prayer in Jesus' hour of desperation. And it's the acceptable prayer that David now seeks to offer up. Note first, as David's in this foreign land, again, surrounded by false gods and idols and idolaters, his prayer is directed toward the one true living God, the God of Israel, the Creator of heaven and earth, who poured out His abounding grace and mercy upon a people who were small and insignificant. And He made them into a great nation because He entered into a covenant with them. David acknowledges the truth when he directs his prayer to the Lord. And you note there in your Bibles the small capital letters. Again, we've looked at this before. It tells us that this is the covenant Lord. This is Yahweh or, or Jehovah who has revealed Himself to Moses as I am that I am. He is the God who is. The covenant Lord. The God of abounding mercy, everlasting love, and faithfulness is David's God. And this covenant Lord becomes David's only hope for help and comfort. It's the Lord who's always been faithful to His covenant people and who's always been faithful to David. It's the Lord who's delivered him on numerous occasions in the past, who's spared him numerous times from death, from harm, and from evil. It's the covenant Lord God that David turns to in prayer, calling him to be mindful of his covenant, to remember the promises that he made to his people, even the promises that he made specifically to David that one day he would be king of God's people Israel. So David calls out to the covenant God. David's confidence in the Lord to answer his prayer is is strengthened in verse 2. He says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as as the evening sacrifice. We noted one of the great challenges that David was was facing is that he was isolated from 
from the worship of God and the presence of God in the tabernacle. He had no, no access to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. He was here hiding out in a foreign land, far away from where God chose to have His presence dwell in the midst of His people. Yet He acknowledges... He acknowledges here as he cries out to the Lord that the Lord his God is so big that a tent or building can't contain him. That the Lord's truly present everywhere. So that his prayer will be heard and accepted. As if he were in the tabernacle, offering up his prayer and sacrifice in the presence of the Lord. The incense that was offered up in the tabernacle worship was, and then later the temple was symbolic of the prayers of the people going up. As David acknowledges here in in Revelation 5, 8, John, the Apostle John uses the same imagery as he's describing this vision of of the heavenly worship. He says the, the bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, going up before the Lamb of God, the very same Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And so here David's desire is that his prayer would be as a sweet smelling aroma going up before the Lord. And he also lifts his hands in prayer. And he shows, by doing this, he shows his own neediness of God's grace and strength, even as the evening sacrifice was lifted up before the people and placed on the altar for the sins of the people, so that they might be purged and cleansed from its stain, acknowledging their need for God's grace to forgive them of their sins. And these pictures remind us of the true sacrifice and offering of praise and thanksgiving that we're called to offer up to the Lord. No longer, though, do we need to offer incense to make our prayers more palatable to God, nor do we need to offer up sacrifices of bulls and goats because our mediator the only mediator mediator between God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He now intercedes on our behalf as our great High Priest, as He gave Himself as the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that even now, He functions as our great priest, as our prayers are offered up in His name. He intercedes for us and He brings before the Heavenly Father and pleads on our behalf to bring us the answer to our prayers that we truly need at the very time, the perfect time that we need them answered. So David here gives us an example of an acceptable prayer offered up to the Lord, offered up in faith by a heart humbly submitted before Him. So what is it that that David seeks? What kind of deliverance is he in need of? Well, here the most pressing need he expresses is the need to be delivered from his own sin nature and the temptations that he's facing. In verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Note here the, the three different temptations, or the three areas of temptation. First, there's the temptation to, to speak foolish words. 
which could endanger him. Again, David is in hostile territory, surrounded by people who were not that long ago his sworn enemies. He was the one who defeated their champion, Goliath. And so this was no time for David now to to speak about his many victories over the Philistines. This was no time for him to brag about his defeat of Goliath. One misspoken word, and David and those with him would be done. Indeed, it would be a great temptation. When you're weak and weary, and you're in a desperate situation, it's a, a great temptation to say something stupid and foolish. That could increase your trouble because we're not thinking clearly. David had to be careful how he spoke before the Philistines. And then, of course, you add to this the truth that we know, that the tongue can be destructive when it speaks lies and deceits, curses and foul language. Certainly we should pray for the Lord to guard and keep us from such evil speech. Friends, this can be a great temptation when we're surrounded by godless people who utter such foul speech without a thought. And it happens all around us. Under pressure to fit in, we may be tempted to to join in, to join in the coarse jesting, the, the crude jokes, the locker room talk, as well as and join in the spreading of rumors and of gossip. So our lips need a guard. They need a guard to keep the corrupt and foolish speech from leaving our mouths. So pray to the Lord to keep you from this temptation. Pray that you might heed the word to the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4 when he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming in the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And the Lord alone provides such wisdom to help us guard our tongues and our speech. Secondly, David prays that the Lord would keep him from the temptation to give in to evil thoughts and desires that may be lingering in his heart. Remember on two at least, uh, at least two occasions, two that were, we have recorded for us in the Scriptures, David was close enough to Saul that he could have easily killed him. He could have been free. He could have been free from this life of uh, living a life as a fugitive once and for all. But the Lord kept him from that temptation and sin as David had resolved that he would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. Brothers and sisters, when we're oppressed and surrounded by trouble and the sinfulness of this world, keeping our own hearts in check becomes absolutely critical. We can so easily be led astray by, <clears throat> by our own emotions, by events and things that happen in the world around us that, that upset us and, and disrupt our lives. So much so that our hearts become unanchored from the sure and certain hope that we have in Christ. And so not only are we then tempted to begin to, to panic, 
But we even can foolishly begin to plot and plan how we can take matters into our own hands and, and even seek our own revenge. Especially when an injustice has been suffered. But friends, this is a temptation that must be resisted. These are thoughts and desires that must be resisted. And it was a temptation that David faced, and indeed, it was a temptation that Jesus faced on numerous occasions. And yet, how did our Lord respond? He never lashed out. He remained silent before His accusers. And He kept His heart anchored in the perfect plan and purpose of God. And so pray that the Lord would keep you from the temptations of a heart, thoughts and desires given to evil. <clears throat> well, thirdly, not only do the words that we speak flow from our hearts, but our thoughts and desires, if not kept in check, can lead us to, to sinful actions. And David wants the Lord to protect him from the temptation to actively sin. And so he, he may be living in the land of the Philistines, but he does not want to live like the Philistines. He doesn't want to join in their wickedness and their immorality and their perversion. And especially he doesn't want to join them in their idolatry and their false worship. We see here the reference to the delicacies likely refers to food that they would have sacrificed to their idol gods. So this is the temptation that we face when we're surrounded by an evil and perverse generation. Sin of all sorts we see is openly practiced, it's proclaimed and even promoted and celebrated. More and more we see wickedness being celebrated. There's much pressure on the people of God to conform to the ways of the world. But brothers and sisters, we must resist this temptation. We must stand firm in the truth of God's Word. We must not compromise. And not just in relation to the sins of greed, lust, and, and hate that abound all around us, but especially in the sins of idolatry and false worship that have already begun creeping into the church. We must resist the temptation to act sinfully. And David prays earnestly that the Lord would deliver him from the temptations of thought, word, and deed. He prays that the Lord would watch over him and protect him from the evil influences that surround him. And indeed, if these temptations become too much and he falls, David prays now that the Lord would send help to correct him and to bring him back on the path of truth. Or even to send help before he even falls. And this is what we see in verse 5. Let the righteous strike me, and shall be a kindness, and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil, let not my head refuse it. David confesses that the strikes and rebukes of the righteous are far better to endure than the various temptations that assault him. And here he seems to be echoing the words of Proverbs 27, uh, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Well, what a great truth for us to consider. 
A strike and rebuke certainly aren't pleasant to endure. But if they're coming from a true friend, if they're coming from one who who loves you, who you know has your best interests in mind, well, they're far more desirable than the temporary pleasures of sin and temptation that we know kill and destroy. Yet in order to have this help, well, you must have faithful and loving friends and companions. Those who can walk beside you, who can encourage you and, and hold you accountable. Well, we can rejoice and give thanks because this is what the Lord has provided for us in the fellowship of the saints, the body of Christ, the church. Part of our duty as fellow believers in Christ is to hold one another accountable. This is is the the root of what Jesus says in Matthew 18. It's this accountability of one another. He said when he he, uh, charges how to deal with sin, he says if your brother sins against you, don't ignore it. Don't let it fester bitterness in your heart. Don't leave him to his own destruction. Don't run off and complain to someone else about it. But first demonstrate your love for your brother by going to him privately to seek to reconcile him. And it's only when that private meeting goes nowhere then that you then bring others in and, and as witnesses and then later you bring it to the church, bring it to the, to the elders. And too often, in the process of confronting sin and the disciplinary process, people want to jump ahead in the process. They want to skew their own responsibility. But we can't. Because we're first called to show our love to our brother by calling the sin to their attention and seeking to reconcile with them First, David is praying here that he would have such a faithful friend to pull him from the edge or even to win him back if he would fall into sin. Now also, in order to be helped in this way, not only do you need to have these faithful friends, but you also must first be open to correction and rebuke. Right? Too often we're, we're puffed with pride. We, we think too highly of ourselves, not wanting to admit our, our faults and our failures and our sin. And so when a, a loving brother or sister rebukes us, well, we often don't receive it well because we're offended. It's not your business. Oh, it is because we to hold one another accountable. This was David's initial reaction, slightly different but similar, when confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his sin of adultery and murder. Right? The, remember Nathan uh, told this little parable about a man who had friends come to visit and instead of taking a, a, a lamb from his own flock, he went uh, and took a, a, the only lamb of his neighbor. And slaughtered that instead. And as Nathan is telling David this story, David's missing the application to himself and his own sin. And he's outraged. He's like, this man needs to be brought to justice for his wicked and evil deed. 
David was thinking too highly of himself, not thinking that he could be the the guilty one. But it was only when the prophet Nathan said directly to David, you are the man, that David then humbled himself as he acknowledged his sin and he confessed it before the Lord and wrote Psalm 51 as a response. So rebuke and discipline are to be done in love. To either keep someone from diving into sin or to win them back if they happen to fall into sin. But there's one other important point to remember. Right? So we already considered that you, you need to have faithful friends. And you also, we also considered that we need to also be open to rebuke and correction. But there's something else for the one doing the rebuking. Before you go around rebuking others, pointing out their sin, well, first of all, we need to follow Jesus' commands that we need to deal with the log in our own eye be first before we go pick out the speck in our brother's eyes. So we need to keep that in mind, to be humble as we go, and to be mindful of our own sinfulness, our own weaknesses. But also, before you go around rebuking someone, you ought to be sure that you've already clearly demonstrated your love for them in other ways, before this happens, before the need for a rebuke. So that when they do need to be rebuked, when they do fall into sin or they're, they're uh, being led astray, then you can come to them, rebuke them, and they know that you're just not being a self-righteous jerk. They'll know that you truly care for them and for their soul as you warn them of temptations and calling out their sin because they have seen and experienced your demonstrations of love toward them. And so this is the strike of the righteous that can truly be a healing balm to the one who has strayed away or is being led astray and to the one who has fallen into sin. having prayed for help and protection against sin and temptation, David now begins to focus on his oppressors. And as he does so, he roots his assurance and confidence in the promises of God. Knowing the promises the Lord has made to him, David knows that his day of vindication will come when he is justified before his enemies. For his prayer and his harsh desire is still against the wicked. It's not with them. In fact, so confident is he in the Lord's promises that he says in verse 6, their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff and they hear my words for they are sweet. Now there's no settled opinion on the the meaning of this verse. It's got some difficulties as well as verse 7. But given the context of David being pursued by Saul, this seems to be a prophetic glimpse of Saul's certain downfall. And once he is gone... David will then be vindicated. As those who once swore allegiance to Saul will now rally around David acknowledging that he spoke sweet words. He never spoke badly about Saul. He never sought to do Saul any harm. 
And of course, this seems to be precisely what happened in 2 Samuel 5. After Saul was killed in battle, and even those that were in his, Saul's family initially rose up in rebellion, but when that was all that rebellion was quashed down, all Israel gathered around David to make him king, and they remembered all the good that he had done for Israel and the people of God. And so David <clears throat> looks forward to this vindication. But for now, in the moment, he's still in the midst of trouble. In verse 7, Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave as when one plows and breaks up the earth. And this, this again, this verse is also difficult to, to not only to understand, but even difficult to translate. But the sense of it seems to be a statement of the reality of the current distress. That there's been a great disruption. Just like a, a farmer goes and, and plows the field and, and disrupts the earth so that he can plant the crops. Or some translations may have uh, the, the uh, chopping of wood. And you think of the wood chips kind of scattering it all about. Well, in a similar way, bodies are left scattered and exposed. Even at the very mouth of the grave, that is, death is, is close by. And it's the persecutors who have done this. And in this case, we think especially of Saul. And so then, this leads to the call for justice. In verse 9 and 10, he says, Keep me from the snares they have laid for me, and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape. And David is calling for God's justice to prevail over his enemies. That their plots and plans of evil would be, would be thwarted. That their traps and snares would be ineffective. And that divine justice would prevail. That is that the traps that they set for him would actually come back on them and snare them instead. And this is a common plea that we see throughout the Psalms. That the Lord is, who is sovereign over all things. That He would make the evil of the wicked fall back upon them. This isn't karma. It's not some random act of fate as people like to ascribe it. But it's a purposeful judgment of the sovereign God that often falls upon the wicked. That the evil they plot for others falls back upon them. And so David will not seek to do this on his own. But again, he calls for God to vindicate him and to bring justice. And then he simply rests. He rests in the Lord's hands, awaiting God's answer, answer to his prayer. This is the resolve that we see in verse 8. That my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not... Leave my soul destitute. David's in great distress. He's surrounded by enemies and godless influences. He's prayed that the Lord would not lead him into temptation. That the Lord would be faithful to deliver him from evil and bring an end to his persecutors. But he doesn't continue to fret and worry about what may or may not happen. Though he likely prays repeatedly, and we certainly get that sense here, he doesn't panic. He doesn't panic that the Lord hasn't responded to his prayer just yet because he knows the Lord will answer in the perfect time. Now he keeps his eyes fixed on the Lord God, the covenant God, 
the faithful and true God. And He takes refuge in Him. And He rests in Him and the promises the Lord's made, even reminding the Lord of these promises by saying, do not leave my soul destitute. See, David had this promise that he could fall back on, that God had had the prophet Samuel anoint him to be the next king of Israel. He knew that God would be faithful to that promise. And so he can call back, the Lord back, to remember that promise. Don't leave me destitute. Don't leave me open and exposed. Cover me in your goodness. Cover me in your love and in your mercy and deliver me and prevail over my enemies. Beloved of God, how challenging it is for us to live this life that we know is filled with sin and misery, with temptations and evil lurking around every corner. As the redeemed in Christ, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. He is the one who greatly humbled Himself, leaving behind His power and glory in the heavenly places so that He could enter into our world of sin and misery, tempted and tried in all ways that we are yet without sin, so that He could then be for us that once for all perfect sacrifice for our sin. And friends, this He accomplished when He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again from the dead on the third day, securing victory and eternal hope for all those who would trust in Him. Yes, in the midst of daily trials, struggles, and temptations, look to Jesus. Look to your Savior. And rest in His all-sufficient grace so that you might be protected from Satan's snares from His temptations, and that you might truly be delivered from evil, all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to You for Your Word and the truth that is here. And we thank You for the reminder that You are our covenant God, our faithful God, our Savior, our Redeemer. That you have a perfect plan for us. And that even though we journey through this life, in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation, we pray that you would sustain us by your grace. That you would keep us from evil. That you would lead us not into temptation as those temptations swirl around us every day. And we do become weary from the day-to-day battles against sin and temptation. And we pray, Father that You would strengthen us, that we would always have our eyes fixed on You. That as You renew Your grace for us each and every day, that we would be strengthened as we trust in You, as we trust in Your perfect plan to get us through and to bring us to that eternal, glorious place where we will stand in Your holy presence forever and ever and ever. Father, we just pray that you would apply these great truths to our hearts by the power of your Spirit. And that with this knowledge, we might be equipped to be faithful witnesses for your glory, to take this gospel message to others who are in need, who are being swallowed up by temptation and sin. We pray, Lord, that they might be delivered 
even through the word we might speak to them out of love and concern for their souls. So we pray, Father, above all things, that your name will be lifted up and glorified in us and through us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.